Chapter 2, verse 11. Now in those days, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and observed their hard labor. And he saw an Egyptian man attacking a Hebrew man, one of his own people. And he looked this way and that and saw that no one was there. And when he attacked the Egyptian and concealed the body in the sand, when he went out the next day, there were two Hebrew men fighting. So he said to the one who was in the wrong, Why are you attacking your fellow Hebrew? The man replied, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Are you planning to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thinking, Surely what I have done has been known. And when Pharaoh heard about this event, he sought to kill Moses. So Moses fled and settled in the land of Midian and settled by a certain well. Forty years of his life go by. We have no idea what they're like. Okay? And unlike the movie The Ten Commandments, there wasn't like we have no idea whether there's this huge camaraderie between the heir apparent, the purebred Egyptian, and him, and they like chariot race together and all this kind of stuff. And it was a heartbroken moment when he had to flee. Okay, that's all made up. Okay, we have no idea. Possible? Yes. But made up? Probably. Okay? So he grows up, and all we know is this. Some, for some reason, at the age of 40, he no longer sees himself as an Egyptian. Okay, we don't know why. Right? We, but he now begins to identify himself to his own people. So, seeing himself as a deliverer. Here's what's interesting. God has never spoken to him yet. He has no idea who God is. I mean, he knows who God is, but he doesn't know God in a relational sense. He doesn't know the plan of God. He's not looking at his prophecy clock and thinking, this is time. I'm born at the right moment. Okay? All he knows is he now sees himself as one of them. He has the same compassion for them that his adoptive mother had for him. He now sees that what is being done to them, he doesn't like it. And he sees himself as the person who is meant to bring an end to it. And that's important to understand, is that God has chosen a man who does see himself as a deliverer. And more importantly that, God has chosen a man who wants to be a deliverer, who wants to do something about what's going on. And so, as the great deliverer, he steps in to defend this Egyptian, and he kills him. Yet, God has made it very clear already in Genesis chapter 9, murder is forbidden. Okay? So in chapter 4, we learn with Cain that murdering your brother is not a good thing. And God is very opposed to that. In chapter 9, after they get off of Noah's ark and God makes the Noahic covenant with them, God clearly says, a man shall not take another man's life, and if he does, he will forfeit his own life. So here's what's interesting. Under the law of God that has not been fully and officially revealed yet until Exodus and Leviticus, but has already been clearly established on what God thinks about murder in chapter 9 of Genesis, Moses is now should be killed. According to God's law, he should be executed for the murder of the Egyptian. And that's important for you to understand because now you need to understand in God's law, he's on death row. He should be dead. 
And if you read when we get to the law, there's n the law is pretty hardcore. <laughs> okay, somebody blasphemies God and God strikes them down dead. Now, um, um, Aaron's sons don't sacrifice or burn the fire in the right way, and God strikes them down dead. God takes the violation of his law seriously and takes capital punishment seriously. Moses is guilty of murder. He should be executed. If the Pharaoh executed him, he would be have the backing of God on that. Okay? And that's very important to understand. And so you know that he knows that what he did was wrong too because he looked both ways. Now, they don't have cell phones everywhere recording everything and no hidden cameras, but he looks both ways. Then he intentionally premeditates and kills the person. You look both ways, you're intending to kill them. And then he buries the body in the sand. Now, if you're the son of the princess of Pharaoh, you should be able to go in with the body of an Egyptian foreman and say, I didn't like him. I killed him. You have that much power that nothing's going to happen to you. Your chariot might be taken away for a couple of nights. But other than that, there's going to be no death penalty for you. Killing people below your status, there's nothing wrong with that. And not only that, the law, according to God, exacted death penalties on crimes. But everywhere else in all the cultures around them, penalties were paid financially. What often would happen as you look at the Hittites and the Babylonians and the Akkadians and Egyptians, if you committed a crime, especially against somebody lesser than your class, you, all you would have to do is pay a fine. And that was enough. Or sometimes, if you couldn't get out of it and you had to die, you would just find somebody else to die in your place and everybody accepted that. You'd find some homeless person that nobody cared or whatever. Moses could have easily done that. Okay? But something makes him think that he can't do that, that this isn't going to work with him. Maybe he's already made it clear that he's not an Egyptian anymore. Maybe nothing matters with the Pharaoh, the new Pharaoh doesn't care. But whatever reason, everything that would have normally allowed him to sweep it under the rug as a rich kid now is gone. And so he sees himself as a deliverer, he identifies with his people, and then he goes out and murders somebody, and then he's going to have to flee. He's a crappy deliverer. That's the point. And so, not only does he do this, then the next day he sees two Egyptians fighting. So he sees himself as a deliverer, and as in their protector, but he also now sees him as their deliverer, as a mediator, to help them all just get along. And so he steps in and says, hey, why are you fighting? Now two things are immediately revealed to him. One, who do you think you are? You traitor to our people? We've been persecuted, abused, we're being exterminated, and you're up there in the palace living it up, and now all of a sudden you want to slum it with the rest of us? They don't identify with him. They don't accept him. That's an important thing about being a deliverer. You kind of need to be accepted by the people that you're delivering. But the other thing is, you're going to kill me like you killed the Egyptians? Turns out there was a CVT camera, okay? They saw him, and they fear him. And it's at that point that he knows that his people know that he's a murderer, and they don't accept him, and he finds out that the Pharaoh knows that he's a murderer and doesn't accept him, and he flees. 
And this is very important. Moses is depending completely upon himself. He is depending upon his Egyptian worldly training. And it has failed him miserably. And so when he tried to take matters into his own hands, he failed miserably. And he ends up making it worse for his people. And he makes it worse for himself. And this is going to destroy his identity. And we're going to see that later. And so this is very important because he is a deliverer. God created him to be a deliverer. We know that because we've seen the rest of the story. But because he's choosing to do this without God, he's a failed deliverer. And that's important. That's important to understand. So he flees out into the Midian Desert. Now, this is far away. The Midian Desert is, as you go look at Egypt and the Nile, and once again, I want to have a map for you, but this thing still doesn't work. Um, but you can go on my website and look at it later. If you, for your perspective, you've got Egypt here and the Nile's going down, and then there's that little triangle, most of you know, called the Sinai Peninsula. Okay? You go across that Sinai Peninsula, and somewhere on either the in the Sinai Peninsula or on the other side of that body of water is the Gulf of Aqab is Midian. Okay, the Midianites were nomadic people. They were shepherds. They went around where the, wherever the, the grass was. You understand nomadic people don't have land that belongs to them. They go wherever the animals take them, wherever they need to feed. And you, only, and you can't eat all the grass in an area either because if you eat it all up, then it has the trouble coming back. So you eat a certain amount, you go somewhere else, you go somewhere else, you go somewhere else, and then when you come back, this has grown back enough to go there. And you travel around. So one, you hope that most of the places that you're going are not claimed by other people, which is a really good chance if you're out in the desert already. Okay. Two, if you become powerful enough and wealthy enough then you can become strong enough to protect some of your lands and claim them. You can't exactly defend them if you're constantly wandering around everywhere, but you might gain a reputation that when you come back around, you better not be there because we have powerful enough people that can deal with you and don't take all the grass. But that's rare. Okay. Third, if you don't have that, then what you end up doing is you end up paying taxes to whatever kings own those lands. So as you're traveling through this particular land, you find that king, and you pay taxes to use the grass for that time period. You move to the next land, you find the next king, and then after a while, the kings know you, and then you probably pay some kind of, uh, hey, we're here these three months of the year, we'll be back, we'll pay our taxes for that, and oh, and then you kind of work out your Google Calendar on that, okay? And so you move around, and that's typically how it works. So he goes out into the desert, and he flees. He's a nobody now. He has no identity. He, remember, he's fleeing. So he's one thing that like the Prince of Egypt cartoon probably got right is that he probably still is dressed like an Egyptian. Okay, and he's cut his hair like an Egyptian, and he, they recognize that. And he and if you've been grown up forty years in a palace, you're probably going to carry yourself with a cer certain amount of pomp as an Egyptian. So he's going to be recognized as one of those. So in verse 16, Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and they began to draw water, and they filled the troughs and ordered to the water the flocks. And when some of the shepherds came and drove them away, Moses came up and defended them. 
and then watered their flocks. So when they came home to their father, Ruel, he asked, well, why have you come home early today? They said, an Egyptian man rescued us from the shepherds, and he actually drew water for us and watered the flocks. And he said to the daughters, so where is he? Why in the world did you leave the man? Call him so that he may come back and eat with us. So this is important. Moses still sees himself as a deliverer. You understand why he would want to deliver his own people in a country that he's familiar with. But now he's delivering a people that he doesn't know, strangers, in a land that he doesn't understand because he still sees himself as a deliverer. And that's important. This is who he is. Even when he fails miserably, he can't help himself. And so what this does is it tells you two things about him. He has great confidence and determination to deliver people. But he also has a compassion for people who are being oppressed, and he wants to do something about it. And that's very important. These are the two qualities that we see from Moses. His upbringing is not important. Where he lived is not important. What the Bible wants you to learn from him is that he has the ability to deliver, and he has a deep need, a deep compassion to step in when people are oppressed oppressed and help them, even if he doesn't know them. And that's important. And so he sees these women, and he helps them, and he fights them off. Now, this must have been a reoccurring event, because notice that the father is surprised that they came back so early. Probably what's happened is that the men typically drive them away, and then after they're all done, then towards the end the women are now able to safely come in, and then they come home late. Now you understand women typically went to the well twice a day. Okay, sometimes one, depending on how close it was and how many of them were, but twice a day. Once early, early in the morning, like before anybody wakes up. So there's water for the day. And then once in the evening, usually, to prepare baths or whatever, which we're not talking about baths with soap. We're talking about probably like ceremonial washings and that kind of stuff, ritual sacrifices and that kind of stuff. So they go out early in the morning, and they're being abused on a daily basis. Now, what's interesting is that these men are probably military men who are used to getting what they want because men don't go to the well and they don't get water. That's a woman's job. So if these are men, then they're probably more like raiders, okay, or people who don't have women with them because they're out conquesting. So they're coming back here oppressing the weak people and taking advantage of the women. And Moses fights them off. This says something about his training. He takes on multiple men. Now, doesn't mean he's going Chuck Norris on them, but he has enough skills that they feel threatened and they're willing to run away. And then he actually then comes in and actually takes care of the woman. Now, you understand, like in most cultures, this is a marriage proposal. Okay, now I don't think Moses is wanting to do that because he's taking care of all seven women. And unless you're watching the old movie, Seven Brothers for Seven Brides, that's probably not what he's thinking. Okay, so the reality is. But what it is, is you, you, this is not a man's job to serve water to the women. That's not what men do, and yet he's doing it for them, which shows, once again, his compassion for people. And this is huge, because God typically cannot use prideful people. 
God uses the broken and the compassionate. And right now Moses is being broken, but the compassion is already there and is a part of him. And so he takes care of them. Now, here's the other thing. You need to notice this theme. Wells tend to be the places that you meet women, okay? <laughs> if you remember, it was Isaac's servant met Rebecca at the well and brought her back. And then Jacob went to the well and met Rachel. And it also tends to be the place where you show off. Like, there's a stone over top of the well, and it's so big that it takes multiple men. But Jacob just grabs the whole thing by himself and, like, moves it off. Okay? Like, look at me. Okay, there's a pickup line for you. Okay? <laughs> I can move well stones. Um, <laughs> Moses at the well, like, fights him off. Okay? So, like, the water cooler, I guess, today is the place to meet the woman. So... That's what I tell my students. Go hang out by the drinking fountain. You'll move your future wife. Okay? But you've got to do something impressive, not be a moron. So, so he defends them off, and they go back, and Ruel brings them in. Now, to, make, to break bread, so to speak, to have a meal with somebody, is to accept them as part of the family. That doesn't, in the ancient Near East, and even today, if you invite somebody in, it's to accept them as family. Now, typically, hospitality is one of the most important things in the ancient culture, and even over in the East today. And if they do, they will always, always, always bring you in. And they'll do this ritual with, like, drinking tea or coffee, and they'll ask if you want it, you have to decline, and they'll ask if you want it, you decline, and you do it, like, four times. And the fourth time, you finally say yes. And it's this tradition they go through because it's huge to them. And there's a whole bunch of reasons behind that, but that's another night. And... um. You accept this, and they will sit there and they'll watch you eat. Because hospitality is huge, but they will not join you because they don't know you, and they don't trust you, and they don't accept you. But when they sit down and eat with you, then you've become family. And you've become part of the group. Now, we'll just go out with anybody, but, and I'm not saying that's wrong, but we're just so used to like, hey, yeah, we'll go out to eat because restaurants are everywhere. But in the ancient culture, sitting down and breaking bread together is like making a covenant with each other. And so Ruel invites them in. And he quickly becomes a part of the family. And he is given his daughter, he gives his daughter Zipporah to Moses. And then Moses has a son, and he names him Gershom. Which means, I am a stranger and a nobody in a strange land. How would you like that for your name? Mom and dad give birth to you and say, a beautiful baby boy. Let's name him. I'm pathetic, and I'm a nobody, and I'm a stranger in a strange land. <laughs> now, one, it's not uncommon to have multiple names in the ancient world. But two, this tells you everything about how Moses views himself. He's a failure. He's 40 years old. He's tried to deliver his people. He's failed miserably. There's a death warrant out on him. And yeah, he rescued a few women, but he's in this nomadic tent. He's going to keep care of shepherds. And you know, as an Israelite reading this, that he's supposed to be a priest leading a nation because he's from the tribe of Levi. But he's not. Ruel, a foreign Midianite, is the priest of this family. And so he's not where he belongs. And he feels that. 
Now, he doesn't know he's supposed to be a priest yet because it hasn't happened yet. But the point is, he's supposed to be someone powerful and significant. And yet he is, for the next 40 years, he's not going to have his own sheep. He's going to live under the headship of a foreign guy. And everything that he has does not belong to him. It's his father's sheep. It's his father's daughter. It's his father's tents. It's his, well, more than that, it's his father-in-law. And for 40 years, he's a nobody. 80 years old, think about this. This is our entire life. By the time of 80, we're like kicking the bucket, okay? And you're lucky to get the 90 or 100, and that's rare. He has spent his entire life on the complete opposite end of the American dream. And he was supposed to be more than the American dream. He's a loser in the world's eyes. And he sees that because he calls his son. You know it's bad when you name your own kid. I'm a loser, so to speak. Now that's a little harsh. It's not exactly saying that much, but that's what you kind of feel like if I'm a nobody in a strange land. And that's what he names his kid. And this is his new identity. He's gone from an identity that, no, I'm never going to be Pharaoh, because I'm a Hebrew. But I'm going to at least be significantly influential and powerful in the kingdom of Egypt. And now he doesn't even own his own animals. And he's working for his father-in-law. And what this should immediately make you think of is Jacob with Laban. The same situation. Jacob gained the inheritance, the entire Abrahamic inheritance, and had to end up running because he did the wrong thing at the wrong time in the wrong way for the wrong reasons. And he ends up working for the next 20 years for his father-in-law Laban, owning nothing. And when he finally does gain something, his father-in-law cheats him out of that. And when he gains something again, his father-in-law cheats him out of that. And when he gains something again, he cheats three times. And that's Moses. The difference is Ruel is a much better father-in-law. There's no cheating going on here, no deception, and Ruel is going to give him his blessing, and eventually Ruel is going to convert to Yahwehism. But it's still just as depressing. He does the wrong things for the wrong reasons, the wrong time and the wrong way, and he ends up in the middle of the wilderness. And this is the theme. If you constantly take matters in your own hands and do it your own way, this is where you're going to end up. And maybe you won't end up in the literal wilderness, but you will end up in the emotional wilderness or something else like that. Or the, now getting to the age of 40, I'm not going through a midlife crisis, but I can understand why people go through midlife crisis. I always thought that was dumb, but when you get to be the age, you're like, oh, okay, I can kind of understand why people, that happens. And especially if you're not a Christian, I can totally understand why that happens. Because you look back and you're like, what have I really truly accomplished? This guy's 80. What have I really truly accomplished? Okay, now but in the same sense too, you have to realize that this is pretty much the common life for everybody. Okay, there is no American dream. There is no climbing the corporate ladder. There is no the pursuit of happiness. Okay, this is everybody's life in the ancient world. This is what most people go through. But he can kind of relate to us as American because he also came from an Egyptian palace where most people never even had that to begin with. Okay, so, so this, this is where he is. 
Now, it's also important to know that God forbid the Israelites to marry any of the Canaanites, any of these ten nations that live in the land of Canaan. But he never strictly forbid a Midianite. And one of the reasons is a Midianite is a descendant of Abraham. Abraham remarried a second woman at the end of his life. She's just briefly mentioned at the end in chapter 25 of um, Genesis, a woman by the name of Keturah. And he had several children, and one of the children that he had with her was Midian. And Midian became the father of the Midianites. So even though you're not supposed to marry outside of the covenant people, God does not forbid this because Midian is technically a descendant of Abraham, the covenant father. But we don't get any sense that Midianites are worshiping Yahweh. But what we do get the sense that they have a memory, an understanding of this unique God, but they've also allowed themselves to be influenced by all these other traditions and all these other gods. And that's the sense that we got. So any questions? Was it uncommon for the women to be shepherding i mean no 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 not at all when you have seven daughters you're you're gonna you're gonna use them all you're not gonna be like well i have seven daughters and three boys but hey you can just sit on your rear and do nothing but one is not uncommon rebecca was a shepherdess rachel and leah were too that was not an uncommon thing they might have different roles and responsibilities but it's not uncommon for women to you have to realize that, yes, there is a sense of women's work and men's work in the ancient world, but not as drastic as what we've had traditionally in the Western world. And really, even the Western world, until the Industrial Revolution, men and women both worked on the farm together side by side. Men and women both cooked the meals together. Men and women both raised the children together. And they all worked. And part of it was when you can't. You don't have a car to drive everywhere you want and be entertained all the time and that kind of stuff. And you don't go job over there. That you did everything together because this was your land. And you needed everybody. The other thing too is because men have a, had more of a tendency to die at a younger age than women. The woman had to know how to take care of the farm after he was gone. So she would be a blacksmith with him. She would be so that she could continue on. So that was not uncommon in the world. It wasn't until the industrial revolution came along that we then pulled men out of the house and put them in the factories. And then they couldn't connect to the family anymore, and they felt disconnected. And then this is when you started having the, the separations. But for most of the world, and even today, typically the only distinctions you really have between men and women's work is mostly the military stuff, the fighting, the defending, and that kind of stuff. And there's a few things here and there, like go getting the water. But you understand, it's not like the men are doing nothing back at home. I mean, they're working their rear end off too, like cutting firewood and taking care of the animals and all that kind of stuff. So there's no sense of like, you work at the house and I go do whatever. Is there any information about being a priest of Midian, what that would have been? Or uh, would he have been working with one of the Canaanite gods? Probably not Canaanites. Midian is on the outskirt of Egyptian territory. So it's the, the first place you get to the minute you leave Egyptian jur jurisdiction. It's probably one of the reasons why Moses stopped there. They worshiped a whole slew of gods, but a priest is basically a mediator. And a priest is, in every culture is not a whole lot different than what we learn even in the Bible. Um, a mediator is, he's got two roles. One, his most important role is that he is responsible for gaining the favor of the gods for his people. 
Okay, whatever that looks like. Animal sacrifice, grain sacrifice, if you're a Canaanite, human sacrifice. Okay, so you do the sacrifices that are necessary so that the gods will... Now, the difference is in the ancient cultures, you're feeding the gods so they don't die. Because if they die, then they don't bless you and you die. And the Jewish culture, or the Israelite culture, you're atoning for sins. There really isn't this concept of atoning for sins outside of the Israelite culture. It's kind of there, but not like what you're going to read in Leviticus. When we get to Leviticus, it is like, that is it. Atonement, 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 atonement. Okay, and so that's his main, main, main job. His secondary job is then making sure that the people understand who the gods are and what they expect out of them. And so teaching them, training them, and that kind of stuff. And then he would also be like some kind of a leader, decision maker, mediator between people's problems, some kind of a judge, that kind of stuff. So the same kind of things that we have. And when we go through Leviticus, we'll show the contrasts and the similarities where you're going to see that a lot of Leviticus, one of the reasons that we don't understand what's going on is because God leaves a lot of information out because everybody he's writing to already knows all this stuff. What he's including is the things that are different. Leviticus is not telling you how to do a priesthood and how to do sacrifice. Leviticus is telling you how to do it different than everybody else. So if it's the same, he doesn't tell you because everybody knows it. He's just telling you what's different. It's kind of like you don't need anybody to really teach you how to drive a car at this age. But if they come out with a brand new car that has completely different functions of how to steer and that kind of stuff, then they're not going to teach you all the same things you already know. They're going to just teach you how this car is different. And that's what Leviticus is going to do, is what is different. So a lot of places, all tense of purposes, the priest is the priest is the priest everywhere you go.